next reading for Reformation Sunday, though more accurately the 21st Sunday after Pentecost, comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass along that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The Gospel of the Lord. May the grace and peace of our triumph God be yours today and forever. Amen. I can remember very, very vividly in my elementary days being one of the shortest people in my class. Now, this happened for a couple of different reasons. One, I've got a late April birthday, and so I was one of the youngest. There were a couple of kids in my class that were younger, but I was one of the youngest. And additionally, something in my genetics that goes above my ability to understand just kept me really small for a long time. And so I can remember very vividly every single time when we would have a concert or whatever from kindergarten all the way up through elementary and even really through junior high for that matter, I was one of the shortest kids. It was really between me and a classmate of mine named Jill, I can remember plain as day, and we were the two shortest ones in our class. And the way that things always seemed to work through that was the tallest kids would be in the back, they would be up on the risers behind us, and since they were up on the risers and they were already tallest, they were towering above us. And the shorter you were, the closer you were to the front. So poor Jill and I, we were always the, the very last two, and we had to be right up in the front corner because we were the short ones. And, and it seemed like every concert, she and I were kind of switching back and forth with who's the short one. Now, you can't necessarily tell here on the video, but I'm actually fairly tall. I tapped out about six foot, but I was not there for, for a long, long time. And so all the way through elementary, I was short, I was small, I was short, I was small. This happened all the way up through even my freshman year of high school. The, the end of my freshman year, I was probably only about 5'2", five 5'3", five and would maybe weighed 95 pounds soaking wet. I was little. But then something happened, this wonderful moment that we tend to call puberty. And in the summer between my freshman year of high school and my sophomore year of high school beginning that later that fall, I grew about eight inches. So when I came back to school that year or that next fall, I was like 5'10", 5'11". I wasn't quite done growing yet, but I had gotten a whole lot taller. Eventually, I would end up at six foot. And because of that, and because of the amount of time that has happened between me when being really short when I was younger and finally getting some height, you know, this happened roughly 30 years ago, not quite 30 years ago, my perspective, my height, what I can see because of my height has been pretty ingrained in me for a large part of my life. And I've kind of forgotten what it was like to be the little one. Now, I remember it, but I don't really see that very often. However, I am oftentimes reminded of that different perspective because I am in pretty close relationship with someone who is a lot shorter than me, namely my wife, 
whose growth, whose height tapped out just short of five feet. She's not even five feet tall. So our perspectives are a little bit different. She oftentimes reminds me that she sees things differently than I do because of my height and because of her height. And this, I was reminded of that again here about two weeks ago when my family went to, over to Omaha and we went to the theater. We went to the, the Orpheum Theater to begin our, our first in our season of Broadway tickets, something new that we're doing this year. Now, our seats were pretty good. We're, we're on the ground level. We're kind of off on one side, but only maybe 30 feet away from the, the, the front middle of the, the stage. And from where I was sitting, with my height, I could see everything. It was pretty great. And even though there were people sitting right in front of me, I could see over them. It wasn't really an issue. But I was constantly reminded of my wife, who was sitting next to me, as she had to keep moving back and forth, back and forth whenever the person sitting in front of her shifted in their seat so that she could see around them. Her perspective with being a shorter person was wildly different than mine. Now, this connects 100% into our scripture lesson for today. Jesus has been traveling from Galilee in the north, and he's going towards Jerusalem in the south. He's been making this journey for a long, long, long time, and he's almost there. Now, today we hear he's going through the community of Jericho. If you are not familiar with the geography of the Holy Land of Israel, Galilee, again, is in the north. Jerusalem is more in the south. And Jericho, this community that we hear about, is kind of off on the eastern corner. It's about 12 or 13 miles away from the city of Jerusalem. And it's very, very close to the spot where the Jordan River interacts with the Dead Sea. In fact, they're, they're really close to each other. And because of its proximity, because of its location, Jericho is an important city. It's an important community. And in fact, some archaeologists believe, there's evidence to make them believe, that Jericho is one of the oldest living, or the oldest uh, historical sites with a continuous human presence living there over and over. It's a community that has lasted the longest in human history that we can find, at least at this moment. It's an important spot. Because it was an important spot, uh, both because of travel and location, people coming through there, just it was a bustling community. It was an important community. And therefore, it was also important to the Roman Empire who controlled this whole area at the time. Now, if you've never heard one of these videos or heard one of these messages before, uh, perhaps this will come as a little bit of a shock or this will be a little bit different. But to explain, there were people who were tax collectors who were usually from within the community or within the, the culture in the area, but they kind of sold out their countrymen, their, their fellow cultural individuals, in order to serve the Roman Empire, and they took advantage of their countrymen to make themselves rich. Because of the location of Jericho and the importance of that spot, there was not just a single tax collector, but there actually would have been many. And we hear one of them is the chief, the head, like the head of this department. And that's this guy named Zacchaeus. Now, maybe you've heard of Zacchaeus before. Maybe you've heard a song. Maybe you haven't either. But there's a song about how Zacchaeus is a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. And that's what we hear. He's described as being short of stature. This is the guy that we really need to pay attention to. He's sort of at the center of this moment that Jesus has. 
Jesus, again, he's traveling towards Jerusalem. He's probably been driving, or not driving. They didn't have cars back then. He was probably walking along the Jordan River, staying close to the water. And that's what brings him in the, the vicinity of Jericho. And now he's going to pass on through Jericho. As per usual, as Jesus is traveling, large crowds gather around. They want to see him. They want to see what he's going to do. They want to see who he is. They want to see all of these things just to catch a glimpse of him. And it kind of seems like in our story today that the entire community comes out and lines the roads. This includes Zacchaeus, who hears, hey, that Jesus guy that we've been hearing so much about, he's coming through. I want to see him. But now here's where things get tricky. Zacchaeus is short. He's small. And he can't see over the crowd because everyone is taller than he is. Now, here's some other things that are working against him. Because of his status, not only as a tax collector, but as the chief tax collector, he's basically the chief jerk among jerks to all of the different people. They don't want him around. They don't like him. They don't appreciate him. They're not just going to let him push through the crowd and stand there with them. They would exclude him, and so he probably feels like he can't even attempt to get through the crowd. And so he's trying to see Jesus. He's trying to see. He can't even see the road, and so he has to think, I have to figure this out. I have to get a different perspective. I have to get to a different place where someone of my stature can see. And so he runs on ahead, and he finds a tree. Here's the deal, folks. I'm 43 years old right now, and I haven't climbed a tree beyond setting up a ladder to trim some branches in a really long time. But if I did, people would just be like, oh, that guy's climbing a tree. That's weird, whatever, and they would forget about it. But in Jesus' day, in Jesus' culture, an adult would never, ever climb a tree. Social status was so important. And it was so vital. And so it was just unheard of. And so for this guy to climb a tree, anyone who would see it would be like, that is so weird. Why is he doing it? Doesn't he know any better? I can't believe he's doing this. But Zacchaeus doesn't care. For whatever reason, he just wants to see Jesus. He wants to see who he is. Now, it does not tell us that he's actually trying to interact with Jesus. It doesn't tell us that he's trying to get Jesus to come to his house. He's not trying to get anything from Jesus. He just wants to see him. And this apparently is the only way he's going to be able to do that. So he climbs this tree that seemingly kind of hangs out over the road so he can see him. Now, as the crowds are coming with Jesus and as Jesus is coming along, we hear Jesus is the one who takes action. Jesus instigates this back and forth interaction, calling Zacchaeus by name. He sees him in the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down here for I need to hang out at your house today. Zacchaeus is beside himself. He's happy. So he hurries down and comes up to Jesus. Now, at this point, everyone in the crowd starts to grumble. Again, they don't like Zacchaeus. They consider him to be a traitor, and because he has turned his back on, the, on his fellow Jewish people in order to serve an oppressive force, they consider him to be sinful. That was the idea about tax collectors. They were cheats, they were swindlers, they were not nice, they were traitors to their culture, they were all around bad sinners, whatever you want to call them. Here's a situation where Jesus is now guilty by association, and we've heard this type of thing before. We constantly hear this type of thing whenever Jesus is crossing those social boundaries that say, oh, you're not supposed to interact with them. You're not supposed to encounter them. You're not supposed to spend time with them. He's like, I don't care, and he does it anyway. And here's another example. And not only does he willingly do that, he's like, I want to go to your house. Let's go hang out. And so all the people are grumbling. He's going to be welcomed into the house of a sinner. He should know better. Maybe this guy doesn't really know what he's talking about. Now, in response to all this grumbling, who 
Jesus probably hears it. Zacchaeus seems to hear it too. Zacchaeus now speaks up for himself. And I really appreciate what Zacchaeus has to say. He says, look, half of what I give, I will give to the poor. If I defraud anyone, I will give back four times as much. Now, this is interesting. But there's actually a little bit of ambiguity. And admittedly, I'm going to go translation on you for just a second. That translation's not overly accurate. That seems to indicate a change in a future tense. Like half of what I give, I will give away. But in the original language, it's all present tense. And I actually kind of like it. Think about this. Jesus, half of what I have, I give to the poor. Whatever I defraud, I give back four times as much. Now, that could indicate that this is already happening, or it could indicate that now this change is going to happen because of this encounter with Jesus. We don't really know which it is, and I actually kind of prefer it that way. Now, in response to this statement that Zacchaeus makes, Jesus then makes a statement as well. And he says, salvation has come to this house. He too is a child of Abraham. The son of man came to seek out and to save the lost. I love the way Jesus says that. Salvation has come to this house. But he almost breaks into the ambiguity just a little bit more. We don't know if Zacchaeus is saying, look, I already do this stuff. And Jesus recognizes and says, yes, salvation is already here. Or we don't know if Zacchaeus is saying, now I will do this stuff because salvation has come to me through Jesus. We don't exactly know. It's almost circular. It's almost like asking the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? When I think about that ambiguity, I think about some other ambiguity that I tend to wrestle with quite a bit. Now, I already mentioned Reformation Sunday, Lutheranism, all of that different stuff that we're celebrating here in my congregation this week and in many different congregations that are, that, that are of the same tradition. And in Lutheran understanding, we have the tendency to start when we talk about the mercy and the grace and the love of God and all of this stuff, we have the tendency to start from the human condition being broken and that God loves us anyway and that God offers grace and mercy. But there's some ambiguity. When I talk about some of this stuff, and when I talk about the story of the scriptures and what we have and all of this different stuff, I talk about how God made the world somehow. It seemingly culminated with humanity somehow. God calls all of it good. God calls humanity very good. So the existence of the world and of humanity begins from a place of God's joy and delight. And if humanity starts there, that means that you start from a place of God's joy and delight. And then brokenness does happen, but the, the joy and delight of God is chapter one and chapter two, and then the brokenness isn't until chapter three. And in doing that, I remind people, and I tell myself this too, that your existence begins from a place of God's love and joy and delight. Brokenness does happen, but because God loves you, the mercy has already been given to you. Now, again, here's the ambiguity. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Do we start from a place of God's joy and delight, or do we start from a place of the brokenness that we acknowledge and that we need God's mercy and love? And maybe if we learn anything from the ambiguity that we find in that question as well as within the scripture lesson today, maybe we find that that ambiguity doesn't really matter. Does it matter that we start from a place that's broken and God has to save us? 
Does it matter that we start from a place where God loves us and saves us when the brokenness happens? Does it really matter, or does the only thing that actually matters is that Jesus announces that salvation is present, that the love of God is present, that the grace of God is present, that the mercy of God is present, whether it was already present or whether it happens in this moment? Maybe it doesn't matter what came first. Zacchaeus is the recipient of of the acknowledgement, whatever you want to say. Jesus says he is a child of Abraham. Salvation has come to his house. Whether it was already there or whether it arrived now doesn't really matter. It's true now. Whether or not he deserved it, whether or not he had earned it, none of that matters. All that matters is that Jesus has made this proclamation about him. He is worthy of love and peace and mercy and grace, and he has received it. Perhaps today you find yourself in a place where you're wondering if you are worthy, if you are worthwhile, if that's if it's for you or if you can be given it. And what I want you to know, what I want you to hold on to in this moment It doesn't matter if the brokenness comes first or if the love of God comes first. All that matters is it is true for you right now as you hear it. You are worthy of God's mercy and love and grace because God has said so and because God loves you. Doesn't matter what came first. All that matters is right now God loves you and God claims you as beloved child. Hold on to that. 